Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Aiello. You longtime listeners know that on this show, we generally avoid hot button social topics and politics, not because we think they're unimportant, but rather we want the Fighter Pilot Podcast to be a place where you can take a break from such matters and simply enjoy learning about military aviation. Well, today is an exception because after hitting it pretty hard for the past couple months, we're taking a break from our normal programming this week. And with the recent Independence Day holiday here in the States, we figure what could be more patriotic than introducing you to a friend of ours who is running for public office. Luke Mixon, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Vincent, thanks for having me, man. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. So, Luke, there are many ways to describe you, no doubt, but relative to this show, you were a naval officer, an F-A-18 Hornet pilot, top gun graduate, weapons school instructor, squadron commander, and so much more. Now, you're also an airline pilot and throwing your hat in the political ring. For which office are you running and from where? You nailed the bio, Vincent. One part that I'll mention in there is that born and raised in Louisiana. You know, my wife is from here as well. And when my active duty career was over, we knew we wanted to move back home. We've been back in Louisiana now for six years and, you know, just a little dissatisfied with the way things are in our country and our state right now. So uh, I am running for the United States Senate right here back home in Louisiana. Fantastic. Now, how do you feel your military leadership and flying experiences have prepared you to be a lawmaker on Capitol Hill? I mean, in so much as any profession prepares somebody for a role in a, what, government by the people and for the people. I think in two ways, Vincent. We like to say that these are serious times that require serious leaders. You know, if people are looking for this 30-year career politician who's seeking some personal ambition to climb the ladder of politics, I'm probably not your guy. But if you're looking for someone who has had a life of public service and wants to do this for the right reasons, I have a lot of experience now. We all do. You know, a lot of our generation does. I've listened to your podcast. I know a lot. We talk about military aviation. And there are a lot of talented, hardworking pilots in our community. But we all know that the success of a squadron ultimately comes down to leadership. And I was a squadron commanding officer. You know, I had 200 folks that worked for me, you know, 12 to 14 airplanes at a time, a lot of equipment. And the success of our squadron ultimately did not depend on my flying skills. It depended on my ability to care for the needs of our sailors, their their health care, their pay, the safety of their families, their quality of life. And that's what made us successful. And I believe that life of public service and that life of looking out for others translates directly into what politics should be. Is that serving those you represent? And the second part I would say is just that you know, our generation spent the last 20 years fighting our wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria there toward the end. And we fully understand the consequences, good and bad, of political decisions. We understand those second and third order effects that have a tremendous impact on our lives and our families' lives. And I believe we need more people like us who understand the incredible consequences of political decisions. And we need more veterans who have been on the pointy end, if you will, of our foreign policy to now serve on the other end and make those decisions. Yeah. Now, are you affiliated with a particular political party? Thanks for asking the question. I think it's so appropriate the way you uh, introduced me and then talked about my experience in the question, because it's exactly the way all these conversations have gone. You know, when I started this, I don't have a lot of political connections. I'm not super wealthy. I kind of started this on my own. One thing I did know was that I needed help and I needed some financial help. And I started by reaching out to my friends, right? And most of my friends are veterans. A lot of them are in the F-18 community. And I called them and I said, hey, I'm going to run for the United States Senate. And of course, we had some laughs. You know, we had a good time. And every one of them, every one of them said, hey, man, I'm here to support you. What can I do to help? And of course, then I asked for their money. And they were all very generous. But you know, they never asked me what political party is. Or at the very end, they would say, hey, who, by the way, 
what party are you running in? And it just goes to show you what people like you and I care about. And that's the, the quality of the person, the character of the person. But to answer your question, I am running as a Democrat here in the state of Louisiana. Okay. Now, it seems to be many former military members aligned with the Republican Party, and that's not based on scientific analysis. That's just anecdote. Are people ever surprised when you give them that answer that you just described? Well, mostly they're just surprised by the fact that I'm doing this. You know, uh, like I said, I spent the last 20 years, a lot of it away from my family. I did four deployments and my wife and I one day counted up the number of days I've been gone. And that's not unique to me. That's all of us, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, we got to a point in our life, my wife and I were back home. We got two great kids. We're back in Louisiana among our friends and family. I decided to do this and everyone was like, Luke, what are you doing, man? Like your life is easy now. You've made it. And they're right. Like my biggest two worries in my life for the last couple of years where, you know, the New Orleans Saints and the health of my tomato plants. So mostly people are just surprised in general. But then once I explain to them why I'm doing this, they really understand. And I've got a, a really warm response, not only from the veteran community, not only from our fellow fighter pilots right here in Louisiana. I think people know that I'm doing this for the right reasons. I suppose just directly answer your question. No, you know, people aren't surprised by my political affiliation, particularly people that know me well understand where I'm coming from, understand why I'm affiliated with the party that I am. And I'm proud of that. You know, I'm really proud to be a Democrat and I'm proud of our platform. Now, look, I consider myself, you know, somewhat of a moderate, as you can probably imagine. And I've had really a warm response to that. Well, that's my next question, because historically, you know, the political spectrum in the U.S. might be described as a length of pipe, which is evenly distributed from left to right. But I don't know about you, Luke. These days, I feel like the political landscape seems more like a dumbbell with the weights concentrated on each end. So you're saying you're a bit in the middle there, uh, sort of moderate? I definitely consider myself a moderate. You know, your analogy of the weight of the barbell with the weights at the end, you know, you're right. A lot of the noise is created on the ends. But I tell you what, that thing is lifted up in the middle. And that's where all the work happens. I've gone around the state, Jello, and I talk to voters all the time. I was in Lafayette last night. You know, this whole week we're on a whirlwind tour throughout the state. And I tell you what, as much as I believe politicians try to go to the extremes and divide us, and even the news media to a certain extent really focuses on those wedge issues that are really turn the volume up. That's not what I find when I talk to people, whether it be Democrats, independents, or Republicans. 80% of us, I believe, agree on probably 95% of the things. And unfortunately, we spend a lot of time on those 10% on the edges. But I've really found that most of us have a lot of things in common and are looking for a leader to represent us. You know, our election is very similar. We have three candidates in the race. There's the incumbent, who I would describe as a right-wing Republican. And there's another Democrat in the race who I would describe as a a very left progressive. And then I suppose those are fine. There's me. I consider myself a very middle-of-the-road candidate. Well, in the middle ground, right? It's messy, but that's where things happen. But I don't think the things in the middle are quite what get the attention of maybe news or social media. And I think that's maybe why there's so much attention on those extremes. Yeah, you're right. That turns up the volume, right? That gets the attention Mm -hmm. when you uh, talk about, I call them the extremist issues, you know, the things that are largely inconsequential. And then I can name some of those if you want. But, you know, the things that are largely inconsequential, but ultimately get all the attention and get people screaming. We're not that candidate. I am not that candidate that is going to talk about nonsense issues that do not affect the people of Louisiana, the people of this country. And I, if you don't mind, I'll just tell you quickly what we're about. Sure. We're about substance, man. Our campaign is really only about two things, right? We kind of keep it simple like we did in the Hornet community. Our campaign is all about standing up for Louisiana families and standing up for our American values. There's three things here in Louisiana that are hurting families. One is crime. 
two is inflation. And the third thing is just quality, high paying jobs. Those are the things we talk about. And those are three things that I think everyone can agree upon. We need to have less crime. We need to bring down the cost of fuel and groceries and health care. And then we just need to here in Louisiana, we have a lot of people who struggle in the state and we need to provide more high quality jobs for them. And then I talk about our American values. We live in this great country, Jello. I think you and I know that. I love this nation. And I'm so proud of the things our country's accomplished. I believe we are a beacon to the world. We're all about freedom and justice and equality. I believe it's okay to acknowledge America's greatness while also acknowledging that more progress must be done. I believe those ideas can coexist. You can be so proud of the things this country has accomplished while also acknowledging, you know, there are some sins in our past and we do have room for improvement. We'll always have room for improvement. And I want to be part of that progress, Sam. I always say, I, I think I stole it from a buddy of mine, but he says, is, you know, patriotism is how you use your time, talents, and treasure to serve this nation. And, you know, our generation in particular, I think, has, has spent a lot of time and a lot of our talent serving this nation. But it's, you know, it's not something you put on the shelf. It's not something that you're done with when you leave the military service. I think I have more left in me. I think I have more to give. And I hope to represent this nation well as a United States senator. Well, but fighter pilots have to be good at hard skills, right? Such as executing, let's say, to a strict schedule or following precise maneuvers, maybe even briefing and debrief in a certain way. And in fact, you probably remember this, Luke, in 2008, when you and I were in Guam administering a training syllabus to the U.S. carrier Air Wing Ford based in Japan, we both instructed Top Gun recommended tactics. We were on strict schedules. We had to be certain places, certain times. Now, I presume some of those hard skills are transferable, but I don't know. From the outside perspective, politics seems to me to incorporate more soft skills where you're dealing with people and emotions and you can't always speak explicitly. Am I right about that difference? And if so, how do you anticipate managing it? Yeah. If I understand your question correctly, you're asking me, have I learned to curse less? <laughs> yeah. I've learned to curse a little bit less and I've learned maybe to be a little less direct. Look, I think you're right. The hard skills have served me well in that I tell people how I feel. I'm going to do this the right way. I try to be direct with people. I try to just say what people hear so I can get their money or get their vote. And sometimes that disappoints people. And sometimes, frankly, people, they're usually surprised. Like, wow, you're really sincere. You just tell the truth. I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. We only have a couple of rules in our campaign. The first one is always tell the truth. Uh, the second one is never be personal. And the third rule, if you care, is uh, when there are differences between me and my opponent, we're relentless on them. And there are things that are important to us, we're relentless. So those direct skills have helped me. But I tell you what, you know, you talk about the soft skills. We all have that one CO, right? I was blessed. I had a lot of great commanding officers, but we all have that one that really made an impact on our life. And I had that guy. I don't think he'll mind me mentioning his name. I hope not. I guess we'll find out. His name is Lou Shaker. I mean, I respect him with the exception of maybe my dad. I respect him more than anyone in the world. We had a great squadron. We won the Battle E. We just did a great job and it was all because of him. And it was all because of his soft skills. He had this ability to make everyone in the command feel like they were the most important. And it wasn't artificial. It wasn't fake. It was real. He had the way of demonstrating how important your job was. I was a training officer at the time. We were, I think it was 2012 when he was a CEO. We were in, doing an OEF thing. And I felt like the success of the global war on terrorism rested on my shoulders. You know, he made you feel that important. You know, I learned so much from him. And I think it's what people want. They want to be heard and they want to be valued. And they want to know that they have a CEO, or in this case, a senator who listens to them. I believe that the skills that I learned from him about valuing people and trying to understand something about people's lives and understanding what's important to others have helped me so much. And I'm grateful that he was my skipper. Those skills that he taught me have been so greatly beneficial. And I hope he's not upset with me if he hears this podcast. (laughs) 
Well, we learn from the good ones and we equally learn from the bad ones. But the point is you take all those experiences and you package it up into what you plan to go do. So good on you. Now, if you are elected, Luke, which committees do you hope to join if you even have a a say in such things? Yeah. You know, I had another boss of mine tell me what's important to your boss should be fascinating to you. That's right. So, you know, naturally with my military experiences, you would think, okay, he wants to serve veterans affairs, right? Or um, armed services, things that I have a background in and things that I have a lot of knowledge in. But the truth is, if I become a senator, my boss are the citizens and the residents of Louisiana. That's right. And Louisiana is a state that I say, we feed and fuel this country, we feed and fuel the world, and we do that through our exports. And our biggest exports here are agriculture and energy, right? We're an oil and gas state. We're becoming more than that. We're welcoming new forms of energy, renewable forms of energy. Louisiana is a uh, worldwide exporter of energy. My dad's a farmer. I grew up in a farm. We have a proud and prosperous agriculture here in Louisiana. We export sugarcane and soybeans and wheat and corn and cotton and all that. So the answer is I need to do what's important to my constituents. So, you know, agriculture and energy, those are the committees I'd want to be in to help the people that I serve. Well, that makes sense. But today you're on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So I want to ask you some questions on various defense-related matters. And let's start with the F-35. I mean, it's not been without its controversy over the past several years. If you're in the group and it comes up, what's your thinking on the F-35? What are we up to? We up to $100 million a copy on those right now? Yeah. Yeah. 50,000 a flight hour? Is that what I... I don't know what it is. So I just, I don't want to guess. It's costly, right? Some of the price has increased and exceeded some of our expectations. We need to invest in our military. We need to have state-of-the-art technology to compete with our adversaries, no doubt about it, but we have to do it smartly. Certainly that requires funding our armed services with the most sophisticated and most capable fighter aircraft we have, but we have to do it smartly. I give the example sometimes of investing smartly. I was a CEO of a squadron here in New Orleans. We had anywhere between 12 and 14 F-18s, you know, the older models, but look, there was a valuable assets to our country. And we had them in a hangar that the hangar doors were broken. This is Hurricane Alley, right? I mean, uh, you know, hurricanes. When I was a CEO, I think we had five hurricanes reach land when I was a CEO. They would ask you, Luke, what do you want, man? Do you want new airplanes? Do you want more people? Do you want more gear? I said, I just want some hangar doors. (laughs) I am begging you for new hangar. Hangar doors didn't work. You had to mechanically bring them down. It took like an hour, our, our electrical method of lowering them. And eventually, you know, it's unfortunate, but what ultimately got those hangar doors was we had a storm come through. And while we were trying to lower the hangar doors, the wind was so strong. It was not a hurricane. It was just a pop-up thunderstorm. It picked up a leading edge flap and threw it across the hangar into an airplane. Thank God it didn't strike someone. But that's spinning smartly, right? And I got those hangar doors after that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I think it's all about spending smartly. It, people are, is the defense budget too, too much? Is it too small? Look, I think it needs to be the right size. I think we need people like myself and like you and like people in our community who have been the CEOs of those units who understand what we need and what we don't. And I think we do see a lot of wasteful spending. You know, in fact, I think the total cost of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is was six trillion, I think. But we don't have to have a long discussion about that. I'm sure it's not where you want to go, but we can certainly look back on that war or wars and see that there was probably some opportunity to cut some spending and make some more responsible choices during that time and invest more right here at home. So maybe to answer your question, <laughs> let's just let's spend smartly. Well, even more so than the however trillions of dollars was spent was the over 2,000 lives lost, of course, in those wars, which when you just pull out abruptly seems kind of wasted. But yeah, I mean, 
Right. The F-35, like I said, it's not been without its controversy for reasons we've discussed here on this show. And part of that is just that there is, of course, social media on everything these days. Mm -hmm. So it's just a function of how much of it is widely publicized. Well, but how about the B-21 Reader, which is supposed to eventually replace the B-2 Spirit? I mean, it's cutting edge. It's going to be expensive and there's not going to be a whole lot of them. But do you feel technology and aircraft like that are important to the country? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, we have to be on the cutting edge of this stuff. We have to have the strongest military, you know, know, there there are different forms of foreign policy, right? Diplomacy, economic sanctions, our military. And for a long time, we've used that military arm. It's important that we have it. And that requires having the latest and greatest technology. So I support that. We're going to spend $20 billion in the next few years on that, if I'm not mistaken. The price tag is certainly getting high on that. But yeah, I support those type of projects to ensure that our country is safe and secure. How about unmanned aerial systems and specifically compared to manned aerial systems? So we talk about the F-35 could be the last manned fighter, but do you have a particular stance on that or would you more align with what makes the most sense as technology continues to evolve? That's a hard question to answer. I'm of, uh, I'm of two minds here, man. Uh... <laughs> you used to be in that fighter and you know how thrilling that is and how you can make those decisions, but you're also a person that needs food and support and have loved ones at home. and. We got to have a person in an airplane, certainly. The unmanned aerial systems, they've been great. They've been fantastic. It's always odd, you know, when you're uh, overhead stack in Iraq and Afghanistan and you're wherever, you know, at 15, 16, 17,000 feet and you got a couple UASs around you. It kind of makes your mind wander a little bit what the future is going to be. And we have to embrace the future. If we're not getting better, we're getting worse. But I believe we're always going to have. God, I hope I'm right about that. I hope we're always going to have a person in the airplane. <laughs> if I'm going to center, I will fight for that, I promise. <laughs> Fantastic. How about the number of aircraft carriers in the Navy? So, for example, let's say you're on some panel or you're just casting a vote. It's either for, let's say, another carrier or it could be for the Air Force B-21 we just talked about. Do you kind of see that as a no-win situation? On the one hand, if you vote for the carrier, everyone's going to say, well, of course, he was a Navy guy. On the other hand, if you say, no, I think the B-21 is the right thing, and again, I'm just imagining where you might have to pit the one against the other, then all your Navy buddies are going to be like, hey, what the heck? How do you really do what's right for everyone, like you said at the beginning, but not be somewhat tied or beholden to the folks that expect you based on your past? I'm going to try and do the right thing. And you, know, you mentioned my Navy buddies. Every time I put out a statement, whatever my statement's out, you know, we're on social media or TV or radio. Anytime I put something out, you know, whether it be about guns or, or the most recent current events or, or anything, my phone blows up. You know, half oh, this is great, you know, and the other half, I can't believe you're doing this. Uh, or my phone starts ringing. So I become immune to my Navy buddies thinking one way or another about me. You're going to make people upset, whatever you do. And I know that's a small example, but the truth is, in this business, ultimately, in any decision you make, you're going to make people upset. Right. I think you have to be willing to do the right thing and not to get too theoretical or, or whatever on it. But that's what makes people like you and I, why we need people like you and I, because we spent a lifetime doing the right thing. You know, there's things I learned at the Naval Academy that, quite frankly, 24 years ago were just words I said. So someone didn't scream at me, but I had my 20th reunion recently. And, you know, those words mean something to me now. You know, we talked about duty, honor, and loyalty. You know, um, I remember President Bush spoke at my graduation. He talked about leading with character. And that's what our campaign is all about. It's just doing the right thing, being a patriot, leading with character, being a person of integrity, and being a patriot. And ultimately, I think if you do that and you try to do the right thing, yeah, you might upset some people along the way, but as long as you put your country first, I think we'll be on the right course. And frankly, I I think my opponent has failed in that regime sometimes. How about the U.S.'s longtime commitment to the defense of Taiwan? That's an interesting question. I get that question a lot of Ukraine or a lot, kind of similar, right? Mm -hmm. 
Here's how I feel about that. Sometimes we ask and answer those questions without fully considering the consequences. Ukraine, as an example, because they ask that question a lot. You know, I think Americans have become desensitized to war a little bit, and now we've been doing it for the last 20 years. And we'll often just, hey, let's throw up a no-fly zone. Hey, let's do this or let's do that. Look, when we make those decisions, those are America's sons and daughters. <laughs> those are brothers and sisters. Those are moms and dads that were put in harm's way, and we can't make those decisions lightly. I know your question is about Taiwan, but I'll tell you how I feel about Ukraine. I don't support putting U.S. troops there. I don't support a no-fly zone. I support arming them with the resources they need to defend their nation. I think they've proven to be people of metal. They've proven to be freedom fighters and, and willing to fight for their country, and I admire them. You know, they're struggling right now, and we need to keep helping them. Certainly, if there was a decision on Taiwan, I won't commit to anything now just because you never know the situation. But I listened to, you know, as a United States senator, your ability to declare war, the president would make his pitch and we'd make a decision. But uh, I would do that responsibly. I would do that with my experience of knowing the results of war. And I would do that with understanding those America's sons and daughters were put in harm's way. Luke, you said the word guns a couple times, so I want to remind you that the F-18 Hornet you flew was equipped with a 20-millimeter cannon, as you well know. And during the combat or contingency missions you flew, you were likely armed with a 9-millimeter sidearm, as most combat aviators are. What is your stance on guns and gun violence in the U.S.? And describe your appetite for more gun legislation, as is inevitably called for by some in the wake of widely publicized mass shootings. Yeah, thanks for the question. Obviously, there's been a lot of attention on this since the uh, shooting there in Uvalde. And I've, you know, I have a nine year old son, and I just cannot imagine the pain those parents are going through. And it certainly hit home for my wife and I, as it did for everyone. It was so painful to watch. Mm. Look, I've taken an oath to the Constitution. I've administered the oath to the Constitution hundreds of times, probably in re enlistments or whatever. And I support the Second Amendment. I support, you know, all the amendments of the Constitution, but we have to do something. We know the results of doing nothing, right? Doing nothing, we know the results of that. There are three things I support with regard to gun legislation. I support universal background checks. I think any sale of firearms, even to include those being private parties, should go through a background check. I believe in raising the age from 18 to 21 to buy an assault-type weapon. And then finally, I support red flag laws. You know, you hear a lot about mental illness in this country and that being the result of some of these shootings. You can't just identify a problem without a solution. There is mental illness in this country. But you have to have a solution. I believe that red flag laws can assist with that. And look, as bad as mass shootings are, and as much as they receive a lot of attention, well-deserved attention, by the way, the truth is those make up less than 1% of gun violence in this country. You know, I'm sure your audience knows this, but, you know, 22 veterans a day take their lives. And I'll say that again, 22 veterans a day take their lives. And a lot of that is with a gun. And I believe that red flag laws will not only help with these mass shootings, but with suicide as well. If we have the ability to identify people who are going to harm themselves or harm others and temporarily, you know, remove that weapon from them while they seek help for their mental illness, I believe we'll see less of these mass homicides and also less suicide, which is critical for our entire nation, but also very important for our veterans who have gone through a lot over the last 20 years. I believe it helped them as well. Fighter Pilot Podcast audience is composed of military aviation enthusiasts. What positions do they need to know about your candidacy, Luke? And I should point out that probably relatively few of them are actually eligible to cast a vote for you or not. Well, I've listened to your podcast a lot, uh, Vincent, and you have an audience that I'm sure loves this country and loves our military. And I think you're going to find someone in me that they could support. As I mentioned earlier, I love this country. I remind people that it is a fragile republic we live in. You know, when our founders created this country, right, it was all about forming a more perfect union. And it's something that every generation is called upon to make a reality, and ours is no different. 
And our republic is fragile. And every generation must fight for it. I want to be part of that fight. I want to fight for Louisiana families. I want to fight for our American democracy. If any of your supporters would uh, are interested in our campaign, they can certainly find us at LukeMixon.com or on social media at LukeMixonLA, as in Louisiana, LA. But that's it. Fantastic. Well, I want to say that your appearance on this show does not necessarily constitute endorsement by the show, but I do count you as a friend and wish you the best in your pursuits, Luke. This nation certainly needs good leadership, as you've pointed out. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. It was a blast being here. I had a great time. Cool. Hey, before you go, we have a traditional final question on this show asking about how call signs were bestowed. Is that something you're willing to discuss today? It's funny you ask that question. As so much of my personal life is public now, you know, I have uh, every once in a while I get a truck outside my house filming me bring my son to school. One thing I don't get asked about much is my call sign, funny enough. But yeah, my call sign was Rukas. And as most call signs in the Navy, it has a silly story behind it that for some reason it caught on. I'm really working hard right now to change that call sign. And I hope on November 8th, that new call sign is going to be Senator. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, tell us again where people can follow you. Yeah. LukeMixon.com is where you can uh, learn about me, learn about our campaign, learn about our issues. And then social media, I believe we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, LukeMixonLA. And we'd encourage you to follow us and learn more about our campaign. Well, thanks for stopping by the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Luke, and best wishes to you and your team in your endeavors. All right. Thanks. Thanks.